You're listening to Beyond the Crash Cart, a Christ-oriented podcast about surviving and thriving in healthcare. Beyond the Crash Cart is sponsored by Undercurrents Ministries. To find out more about Undercurrents Ministries and other available resources, head over to www.undercurrentsministries.com. Well, um, I, I'm so thankful that you've just agreed to talk with me and um, for me just to kind of, uh, I'd love to ask you some questions, like specific questions, but sure. But also just to share like with what God has put on my heart in the past year, I, I've been building a newsletter and I've been putting out a monthly newsletter. I feel like the Lord's kind of like doing building blocks with me. And so it's Mm -hmm. a book. (laughs) Actually, I started with questions and then that turned into a book and that turned into a newsletter. And then I feel like the Lord's um, really put in my heart this idea of community and growing Mm -hmm. amongst believers who work in the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. And I've really been thinking and mulling over, you know, what challenges people, what impacts people's lives. Because at the end of the day, like, I mean, it's important that we heal people's bodies, but their souls way more important than their body. And if we are just missing opportunities by not engaging in spiritual conversations, by not loving people sacrificially, by not Mm -hmm. reflecting Christ in all these ways, such a shame because the nations are brought to our feet. And we just get to, you know, have ample opportunities if we let the Lord lead us. And so I've been talking with a lot of peers and friends and just about the impact that stories have on people and how stories really challenge us to put ourselves in other people's positions. Well, what would I do in that position? Or, oh man, it is possible to do something that I thought was impossible. And I recently read a quote from Bob Goff that says, friends hope for things in our lives that we never even thought was possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I hope that for, for this community that I'm trying to build, that we would be just small local communities of people who hope for gospel-centered things for our friends and our, for, mm-hmm. for our friends' careers. And so I really don't know how that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> This is really great and topical. The working of the Holy Spirit. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So just be praying about that. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even like conversations like this, you know, how can we be talking to friends about, hey, we thought about this. Have you thought about yeah. how, maybe ways that you can engage more with patients mm-hmm. on a spiritual level. And those conversations people walk away from and think, huh, I never thought about that before. You know, yeah. maybe you, the, the, the two things I was just going to say is I appreciated in your book, you pointing out, there was a specific moment you were mentioning where there was a, a family who had come from, I want to say it was the Middle East and, and was receiving care and how, what a wonderful witness it was. And like the family had actually asked, why are all these nurses and practitioners who are caring for my little child so happy? And the reason is we're joy-filled is because of we're followers of Christ and they were, but the opportunity was missed and was passed off as, oh, it's our culture, you know? And, and I think because medical training is so focused on protocols and, and academics and there's not very much discussion or openness to discussions of spirituality anyway, even when it's actually quite important to care that there's this, this sense of reticence. But 
if I, I talked to you about this before about the CMDA and and their Grace Prescriptions Program. Yeah, that they put out and they're actually redoing it right now. But the the initial um, resources are still out there too. But they're going to be launching, I think, this summer uh, a series of DVDs and like a whole curriculum, and it's all about kind of what you're saying in terms of how do we live out the gospel in our work as doctors and nurses. Mm-hmm. And it's about colleagues, but also patients. And it's about looking at in practical ways, you know, with, with a scriptural basis, giving practical scenarios of, you know, you're in this kind of an encounter, what would be an opening to be able to share the gospel mm-hmm. with someone? And, and how do you do it? And, when, and there's a whole algorithm that they give. But anyway, it's, it's a great program. If that's something that you'd be interested in, like looking into. Yeah. Send me that information because I would love to look into that. I just, mm-hmm. I, I feel like resources like this are very like niche and it's mm-hmm. hard like for it to be, I guess, widespread or well-known. It's a lot of people. Um, and so, and that's actually even why I wrote Undercurrents is because when I, previous to writing it, I mean, not Undercurrents, Hope in the Darkness, um, mm-hmm. previous to writing it, I was having a crisis of faith, but as I, you know, cared for these patients of mine, pediatric patients who were victims of horrible abuse. Yeah. And so, you know, reconciling who I knew to be God, who I knew personally that God was and what I was seeing in these people's lives, Mm -hmm. I I struggled to reconcile that and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. looking for resources and not finding anything like that. If we can, you know, bolster these things that people are already doing, you know, yeah, yeah, that only serves the body more and, and Mm -hmm. yeah, brings life more. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I know you talk about in your book a little bit like of your background, like medical practice background, but I'd like to kind of hear, I guess your credentials, but also the path that the Lord has brought you on. So medicine was not something I I wasn't one of those kids who always wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> my dad had a heart attack when I was in high school, uh, my senior year. And I, at that point, presumed that I was going to write kids' novels. <laughs> and, and it was, uh, I was not a believer at the time. So I went through most of my medical training not knowing the Lord. And it was really through that training and being confronted with, as you reference, really difficult scenarios that he brought me to my knees and then brought me to himself. But attended um, Columbia University for medical school. And um, really the impetus was wanting to try to make a difference in people's lives. Although I had a very secular understanding of that at the time. And then I did a residency in general surgery at Mass General in Boston. And then I did a critical care fellowship during my residency. I did like a three year and then fellowship and then continued and then stayed on the staff at Mass General. And most of what I did, I did some trauma surgery. A lot of what I did was surgical ICU. I I loved being able to care for patients when they were at their most vulnerable and the potential for a really wonderful impact you have and also the privilege of being able to come alongside um, patients and families when they're really grieving and going through some hard, anguishing scenarios, end of life issues, that kind of thing. And I absolutely loved it. And it was actually during my ICU fellowship that I came to know Christ. So I was, I was 29. I went through most of my life not knowing Jesus. And it was actually through um, a period where I was really struggling with the problem of suffering. Because my conception of God had always been, 
I was a, you know, a nominal Christian, you know, I prayed, but I didn't know to whom. And then after witnessing, um, which I've written about before, so I won't belabor it unless you want me to, but after witnessing, you know, some just awful harrowing things that young people suffered in the emergency room, usually through violence from other people. And kind of like you're saying in terms of the, the anguish people are going through, that it, I found it very hard to believe in a God who could be good and allow that kind of suffering. And I actually was, I went into a very deep depression. It was suicidal. I, became, I was agnostic. Uh, and it was through that and then through another patient who had this unbelievably improbable recovery from a brain injury in response to prayer that really opened my eyes to there's something beyond what our science can encompass and describe fully. And, and that's really what got me back to reading scripture. I also read from a bunch of other religions at the time and was trying to decide and then was just awestruck after reading the gospels and Romans. Just, you know, how amazing is God that he would send his son to die for me? You know, so anyway... I didn't mean to give you my testimony, but yeah, I, love <laughs> I loved, I loved my work. And then thereafter, once I came to Christ, the work took on a very different meaning, obviously, which I think it does for many of us, where it became a way to love neighbor in a very tangible, powerful way and to show mercy. And uh, I loved it, but then had my, um, my kids when I was in attending and found that Personally, I, for me to be able to, to raise them, and this is not true of every mom and I, I, at all. I don't want anyone to take away from this thinking that you can't have a career and have kids. Just with my temperament, the challenges at home and what my kids' needs were, my son has special needs and was clearly not going to be a good candidate for traditional school. The best thing for them was to homeschool. And it was Deuteronomy 6 also that really convicted my heart with the teach your kids the ways of the Lord when they rise and when you walk in the way, you know, indicating that our instruction of our kids in God's word isn't supposed to be relegated to Sunday, but should be infused lifelong. And I couldn't do that when I was working the kind of schedule I was where my light weeks were 70 hours in the hospital. (laughs) And my husband, my husband was struggling to work and also take care of the kids. And my son was having meltdowns because of his special needs that we hadn't figured out. So I left practice in uh, 2016. And I've been homeschooling since, but also have been privileged to fall into a writing ministry where, um, as you're talking about with writing and just building community, I've been able to look at medical topics through the lens of faith. And it's just, it's been a joy and um, just a a privilege that I never expected. And it's amazing to me how God works. I definitely resonate with that. I've uh, never aspired to be a writer myself. Mm -hmm. I've always been more artistically inclined and and I loved bedside nursing mm-hmm. until I stepped away right before I stepped away but I I loved it and the Lord kind of allowed me to go through something really difficult to make me fall in love with writing <laughs> yeah 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 so I, I can tell you a little bit about myself I uh, grew up overseas my parents were missionaries Indonesia right yeah um and so mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. and for college and I was gonna get my nursing degree and go on mercy ships. And yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and I met a Texas boy and fell in love mm-hmm. and um, stayed. And so I started working at a children's hospital in Dallas. Um, I did that mm-hmm. for a couple of years. And it was one of those 
situations where you just like turn and burn, you know, and mm-hmm. I was burnt out in two years, like in two years, mm-hmm. I was ready to leave nursing. I was, yeah, politics and just the priorities of that hospital were not ideal. Um, mm-hmm. Great hospital. They do great things. It just ate me alive. <laughs> and so I ended up going across the Metroplex to another children's hospital and found my love of endocrinology and rheumatology. Mm. And I love that population. And I still work for that hospital just in a a different capacity. So, but that endocrine population was so neat because we are still one of two hospitals in the nation that specialize in hyperinsulinism and pediatric patients. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we've been cutting edge uh, research Mm. with an F-DOPA isotope. Um, for yeah. diagnostics and then for also a glucagon study with the FDA as well. So it was really fun, exciting to be on the cutting edge of, of medicine, um, yeah. to play a hand not only in the medical treatment, but the patient education that came with it and just mm-hmm. spending the hours and months with these patients that you got to know, which was so rare in the hospital, unless you work in mm-hmm. oncology, it's pretty rare to see your patients on a regular basis. But I, a lot of kids, I, they just grew up before my eyes and it was, I loved it. And then we started taking on, you know, hospital politics. We just mixed things up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they added on medical psychiatry um, to the floor I was working on. And that's when things, um, and that was about six years ago, right at the surge of the suicide crisis. So uh, um, nobody was anticipating the suicide crisis when we took on this floor uh, or yeah. the specialty. And so um, it was proposed as the occasional suicide attempt, maybe two a month. And we're like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then it was just like overwhelming amounts of suicide, mm-hmm. which then morphed into all kinds of other things. But that is where my, my hope in the darkness was born out of because, uh, you know, I was seeing children 10 trying, you know, like wanting to end their lives. And I was seeing, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of abuse, a lot of suicide in pediatrics is a lot of very heinous abuse. And you know, I would leave work almost every day, just weeping for these children and then go home to my own kids <laughs> Mm-hmm. look them in the eye and be like oh, are people so evil I just like have them even though I know like in your mind like it's just so hard to fathom sometimes yeah so um yes and then I just told the Lord one day I just need you I need you to answer some questions and I don't want someone else's opinion I need you to show me in your word where mm-hmm. the awful things and I want mm-hmm. to see those awful things and I want to see how you handle it because I like I right. just I can't reconcile it when I know you have loved me mm-hmm. such a deep love how how can that be and so I just started doing research for my own and talking yeah. to peers about and I worked with a lot of believers at the time hey this is what God's been kind of showing me about this I've been wrestling with this for a while and this is kind of what insight mm-hmm. the Lord has given me and they'd be like oh, I've been wrestling with that too. Wow, that's so encouraging. Or mm-hmm. we'd have these conversations over the course of the of the last few years and I realized like, I'm not the only one with these, <laughs> these struggles. Like yeah, we're yeah. all struggling and there's like no one to help us struggle well. 
through this, right? There's, there's not enough people saying, hey, I see like what you're struggling with and this is what the Lord's taught me. Let me walk through it with you. And there's, mm-hmm. there was nothing like that. And, and so I really, the Lord kind of gave me this idea of undercurrents, how we so often miss the undercurrent of the spiritual world, of mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. of the enemy in people's lives, of sin, um, but then the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just excited about what God's doing. I feel like he's... <laughs> well, for, look, from reading um, Hope in the Darkness, you, your exegesis was so in encouraging and thoughtful, you know, and, and it seems I could tell in reading it that God was refining you through that process as well, as well as giving a resource that people could turn to. Also, it was so clear that, you know, you would really mind God's word and, and pulled out from this in the midst of ashes around you, been able to pull his goodness and glean it from his word. Yeah. Um, so thank you for, for writing the book too, because I, like you said, no one's, we're not alone in this. <laughs> we're all like dealing and wondering and, and, you know, what you're describing is very similar to how I came to Christ in the first place. It was just like looking and saying, how, why, why, why is this happening? And if you don't have a, a deep understanding of sin and where our place is before the Lord and who he is and what he's done, it can all get so hard to make it through the day. Yeah. And so depressing. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking this past year, how timely your book was when you published in 20, 2019, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking, which book? Which one? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The most recent one um, that you've written, In Between Life and Death. And yeah. timely. Wow. Just, yeah. The, just, you know, the Lord just knew, you know, he just mm-hmm. knew. And, but it's definitely, reading through it made me think, uh, and I wanted to ask you about, like, you know, as you talk about end of life issues with families, just in your past, whenever you, and even when you helped during the COVID surge, when you talked about end of life care, end of life decisions, um, what were ways that you found were good ways to weave the gospel or weave gospel-like conversations into, into really hard, hard conversations? Yeah. So I, I should preface by saying that the discussions that I'm most well-versed in are ones where it's really hard to have a gospel discussion because it's usually in a conference room with a family that you've just met, talking to them about limiting life-sustaining care. And, you know, I think the uh, the best conversations would ideally be with someone with whom you have developed a relationship over time. I will say, though, that there are still sometimes these glimmers that will crop up during a conversation. You know, your, your goal in any kind of end-of-life discussion talking about limiting care in any way is to try to explain, all this is really secondary, explain, you know, how a loved one is doing and what the purpose are of all the technology, but also kind of, you need to have, develop an understanding of where is the family in this? What is their understanding of what's going on? Mm-hmm. And to know coming to the table that there is a whole host of values and perceptions that are going to influence what they decide. And, and you're coming to the table with all of that, <laughs> influencing this one one-hour conversation, and you're only seeing the surface of it. Mm-hmm. So if, first of all, having these discussions, I think it matters. I would always open with, tell me what your understanding is about this, <laughs> and have them speak to me first. Because I think the, the tendency is to come in and sit down and to vomit out information and say, decide. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and it's a horrible position to put families in. And I think that's when a lot of angst and confrontation and disagreements crop up 
So the first thing I always do, and this will help in terms of spiritual guidance as well, is I ask, what is your understanding of what's of your loved one's situation? You know, and then before I talk about anything medical, I would say, you know, can you tell me what kind of a person he or she was? Which will often help to try to elucidate, was this somebody who was really aggressive about medical care in the past? Is this someone who is a follower of Christ? Is this someone who is not, who's been in doubt? Is the family somebody, you know, are they people who have gone to church and it's important to them? So I actually will often ask those questions first before I get into any details about the vent settings and the pressers and all of that and, and try to come to where their level is. And oftentimes if you open and have those conversations, you can get glimpses of people's understandings of faith. And I found that the way to engage in those moments is if they have an understanding of God and they are followers, right? Or maybe they're, you know, curious about the gospel is to try to help them to see and understand um, these really hard medical questions through the lens of the gospel. And that can open up an avenue to talk about the gospel with the, with the ultimate goal of caring for the loved one, you know, but there's so what the reason, what I'm getting to, and the reason I say this is there's so many uh, questions that people who are of a Christian background or have faith um, will have that influence what they say in terms of medical care. And oftentimes they're misconceptions, you know, so, oh, I, I want everything done because the Bible says that life is sacred in all circumstances, even if it's not going to help, we have to do everything, you know, or the opposite end of that saying, God's going to take me when he's going to take me. So even if I only need a ventilator for a day and I'm going to come off of it, I'm going to say no ventilator, you know, and you'll see these extremes. And so in talking and trying to get people to try to, you know, to vocalize and articulate what their, their thoughts and their beliefs are that are the underpin and undercurrents of their decision-making, you can sometimes be able to talk about the gospel that way because it provides an avenue to say, well, actually, this is what Bible says, this is what the gospel says. And it can help to guide medical care, but also, I think, help to minister to them spiritually in those moments. So you talked about ways of shining gospel light into a specific areas of patient care or medical things. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what are ways that you describe how the, the gospel, I guess, plays a role in whatever medical care is provided or whatever medical condition or... So kind of like what I was just saying, someone might say that they feel a need for a loved one to do everything at all costs, right? Because they say, oh, you know, the Bible teaches me that killing is wrong and which is true, mm-hmm. you know, but there are, there are four main principles that I talk about in the book that I think can help to guide these decisions. And they are best seen as a whole, not picking out one exclusively and then ignoring all the others. The verse is that, yes, life is a gift from God and our mortal life is sacred, right? God breathed life into Adam and it is a gift now to us. We're to protect it whenever possible, which is why we aim to protect the unborn and we're against physician-assisted suicide. But at the same time, in counterpost to this is the fact that our times are in God's hands and that the wages of sin is death and it comes to all of us. And so there's this tension that people often will struggle with where the the way to really go about medical decisions from a gospel-centered view is to say, I'm going to accept treatments that have a promise of cure. But when death arrives and it's very clear that further treatments are not going to actually prolong my life, but instead lengthen my dying, 
then I say, okay, Lord, it's your will that I come to be with Jesus now, mm-hmm. right? And then in the mirror, and when you, and then in the middle, you have these murky situations where interventions won't necessarily save or lengthen death, but they cause, they can cause suffering and disability. <laughs> so they will extend life, but with a great cost. And, and those are the situations that are really murky. And that's when it comes down to what is an individual's concept of suffering, because as those of us who are to love neighbor, right, and to show mercy to others, it matters from a Christian point of view that we don't inflict suffering that's going to crush people. Right. And then the last thing, of, of course, is the most beautiful is that we all have our hope in Christ, that death is not the end, that for those of us to whom God's called to His to himself through Christ, we have the hope that this is not a final moment, but instead as a bridge to being with Jesus and that he will make all things new when he returns. And then we will share eternal life with him. You know, and I love um, Romans 8, I think is 8, 38 to 39 is my favorite verse to cling to thinking about these things because neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor anything in all creation can wrench us from the love of God in Christ. You know, so keeping all of those in perspective, I can find can help to guide people in a way that's that's still God honoring and keeps the gospel at the center. That's good. Thank you for elaborating on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. I've been thinking a lot lately about just dignity, the dignity of humanity and the loss of dignity that often comes with just being in the hospital. And I wanted to talk about with you, what are ways that we can help to restore the dignity of the individual at the end of their life mm-hmm. and how the gospel shines a light on that? Yeah. What do you think? Honestly, like, I think treating them like a person goes a whole mm-hmm. way and yeah. not just, you know, checking off our boxes. Cause we all have so many boxes throughout the day Maybe. to check off yeah. so many things that are going on in the background that were our minds, you know, that's like a hamster in our minds. You know, I've got all these other things mm-hmm. about, um, but really to stop and, and see the person and to stop yes. and, and to hold their hand or scratch their back or, exactly. yeah. or answer the questions or those kind of things, I think, restore dignity to the person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's even the language, I think, that we do day to day in our work. I used to get so frustrated because people would say, oh, can you please go see room two? And I say, what's the What's the patient's name? <laughs> you know, let's not please just refer to room numbers. They're they're not room numbers. They're not numbers. Let's talk about Mrs. Smith. You know, but yeah, and I think I think there's a lot of pressure with how complicated care has become, with the burden on clinicians to keep everything in order, and the fact that their hours are so long, and the paperwork and like the documentation is so laborious compared to what it used to be. And I think there are a lot of a lot of pressures against taking the time. <laughs> to get to know people individually, you know? And, and this is, I think, a, a problem, especially in the ICU, where people are often incapacitated, they're on ventilators, they can't speak. And the tendency is to take your little mobile computer and stand outside the door and you do all your, your doctoring or your nursing from outside. Nurses know because they're on laying on hands much more so. But from the doctor's point of view, I think it's a real concern, mm-hmm. you know? So, but, but to first and foremost, as you said, acknowledge that each one is those people is an image bearer of God and that it's our privilege to be able to minister to them body and soul. And part of that comes with stepping away from the computer and going and saying hello, holding a hand, doing your exam, but still treating them as if they're an individual and not just another room number. Yeah. One thing I've uh, always struck me in pediatrics is, you know, we get a lot of medically complex kids 
that don't often survive into adulthood. Yeah. There is a population that do, but a lot of them don't make it very long into their lives. And a lot, of, I think about a lot of these uh, cerebral palsy kids are kids that are nonverbal. And I can't tell you how many times I would be speaking to the mom and I'd watch this kid <sighs> who is neurodevastated. Right, right. Watch me and follow me. And I, I remember... Uh, probably about a year into my nursing career, it like it was a light bulb moment. Oh my gosh, this person, they know mm-hmm. what's going on. This exactly. is not right. Right. <laughs> this is, they're not ner- like completely out, they're out of it. Mm-hmm. They are there in their minds. They're trapped in their bodies. And that kind yeah. of, that really revolutionized like how I cared for special needs patients, mm-hmm. really complex ones. I um, right. move and couldn't talk uh, that we often just, you know, I'm going to roll you over and do what I got to do. And, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, the Lord, really, I think, opened my eyes to see, you know, these are people trapped in their body. Can you imagine how horrible that would be to be trapped in your body right. and not to be able to speak and not to be able to scratch your own back and not mm-hmm. to be able to change your own position or any of that, or, or even be able to say hi. So I, I remember um, just starting to speak to these kids who were in these beds and be like, hey, so-and-so, I'm just going to put this blood pressure cuff on you. It's not going to be, you know, the same as I would do to any other four or five-year-old, you know, right. it's going to give right. your arm a hug. It's nothing scary. No pokes today. We're just going to check to see if you got any big muscles. Mm-hmm. And kids would actually begin to interact with me in ways mm-hmm. that that the mom would be, the parents would be like, wow, I haven't actually seen them interact with other people in this way. Yeah. You know, just restoring someone's dignity in simple ways by just talking to them and treating them like a person, even though we think that they don't understand. They right. Really right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful point. I want to talk about patient education a little bit, um, because that's a huge part of ICU care, any mm-hmm. kind of medical care, but especially ICU care and end of life decisions. And how does your relationship with the Lord kind of impact how you teach your patients? I mean, I think it's, I don't have too much more to add except what you mentioned and we've, we've talked about already is that I think a lot of the hospital is a terrifying place for many people. And I think when conflicts come up, when miscommunications come up, it's often because people are scared and because people aren't taking the time to actually treat them as the image bearers they are, as you were alluding to. You know, I'm not sure if you've been in the, the situation, I'm sure you have actually, of so-and-so person is being combative and not listening or being non-compliant, you know. And all too often, those situations are treated as problems and annoyances, which I think only worsens the situation when really oftentimes just because people are scared and hurting. You know, I can think of, there's this, this is actually something I've encountered more in my personal life of being more of a, a counselor to friends now who go, are going through medical issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a friend who had had a, a really life-altering event and found herself dependent all of a sudden and was being horribly non-compliant, <laughs> refused to follow the instructions from the OT and the PT and was getting out of bed. And then when she got home, was not listening and was combative and yelling. And like, and it's because she was devastated because she was someone who built her own house with her husband and was used to prizing her independence, you know? And I remember there was being this big fight between her and a caregiver because she insisted on going, walking across the street to go to the mailbox. And they didn't think that was safe. 
but she wanted to go across the street because her husband who had died had made the mailbox, you know? And, and I, I find that when I put, when you put aside your own agenda and say instead, okay, this is someone who is reflective of God. <laughs> Let me see what is in his or her heart right now. What are his or her motivations? And put aside whatever my own need is to get something done. And instead look and say, I'm a sinner. I know you are too. We're both saved by Christ. Let me pause and find out what is actually within your heart. Mm. I think that that I think can ease the the barriers that you have to patient education a lot when you try to see people and see what's going on within their heart and their mind and start there. In my newsletter earlier last year, I interviewed um, a counselor, the local uh, school district, and uh, she talked about how just communicating, I see you, I know you, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Volumes to people and opens things up for an impossible situation. So that mm-hmm. it's encouraging to hear that on so many different, from <laughs> you know, that yeah. something to being seen, being heard and being known right. is what the Lord does for us. Right. I love to hear stories of maybe times where you prayed with a patient or had a gospel conversation or had a conversation that pointed people to the Lord where there was obviously some kind of encouragement that happened both ways. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any stories like that from your practice that stick out? Unfortunately, not from practice. I've got plenty. And actually, right, so I've got a second book coming out in April. I'm not sure of Glimmers of Grace that talks about a lot of actually the kind of stuff we're discussing about struggling to discern God's goodness in the, the crucible of the hospital, whether you're a patient or a doctor. And in that book, I write a lot about my friend, David, who was a, a brother in Christ who loved the Lord, but he had emphysema. And I was end stage and the last six months of his life were really hard. And in the setting of the constant bounce backs to the hospital and the disappointments and the pain and the confusion and the struggling to breathe, you really started to lose sight of who God was. Uh, and it's made all the, the more difficult, as I'm sure you've seen too, because so often when you're in the hospital, the normal routines that you would cling to, um, to stay rooted in God's word, going to church, singing hymns, taking the sacraments, being able to study the Bible, they're, they're, you're cut off from them. And so you're, you're thrust into a situation where you're suffering, you're hurting, you're scared. You need reminders of God's presence and the normal means by which you would turn to them are gone. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and he was in the midst of that. This is someone who, when he would be admitted to the hospital, he would ask us to bring him a stack of Spanish translation Bibles to pass out to the staff who were helping out. And um, just had such a heart for the Lord. But then in his like last few months, it became so cumbersome that, you know, he, he was scared. He went from knowing God's love through and through. He'd survived um, drug abuse and homelessness for 10 years in New York and saw God's work in his life, bringing him through that. But he started to then doubt God's love. And he said to me one day when I went to visit him and said, just like, I'm just so scared. I said, why are you scared? He said, because I just... I just hope I'm going to heaven. You know, and I said, David, do you, do you know that Jesus died for you? Do you believe in him? He's like, I do. I said, that's all, you know. But even through that, God took the word that he had harbored in his heart and brought it to the forefront of his mind, even when he was in the midst of delirium, to give him hope. He said to me when I came in one day, it was only just a couple days before he died. And he woke up, he was sitting up in bed all of a sudden. And he says, 
everything's going to be okay. He says, I know, I know I'm going to see. He said, he said, God is so close, closer than any of us realizes. And I know I'm going to be with him. And it's because he had had a, a vision, not necessarily in front of him, but in his mind, God brought the vision of Isaiah walking into the temple. And, and he had the vision of the robes coming around. And, you know, Isaiah drops to the ground and says, woe is me, I'm undone. But David had the rest of the story. <laughs> he knew what Christ did. And so it was, uh, it was remarkable to see God at work through his word, through someone who had been a servant to him for so long, who had been brought to his knees by suffering and illness, but to see that God was still present with him mm-hmm. and had used the word that he'd given him during his well moments to encourage him during his last. Such a, like, it's such a challenge too. And I think from a nurse's perspective of, you know, that, that could be, you know, your opportunity to, mm-hmm. to really speak life into someone who is yeah. struggling, you know, what an opportunity. We have so many hours with patients and be able to say, Hey, can I just pray with you? Yeah. What mm-hmm. that could do to another believer. Mm-hmm. It's just really struggling and in a hard place. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned your upcoming book because I was actually going to ask you if you had any upcoming projects. Oh, yes. <laughs> you and what we can do to, to help you help boost your sales and all that good stuff. That was so funny. <laughs> to, to God's glory. <laughs> it's his glory. Yeah, it's coming out April 13th from Crossway and it's called Glimmers of Grace. Whereas between life and death, it was... I put a lot of research into that book and it was very practical. This is different. This was really my attempt to take the narratives and the reflections that I thought God had given me during my experience in medicine, talking a lot about suffering and where he is. And I felt like I was finally stewarding those narratives and and, and trying to bear witness to how he remains steadfast in his love and faithfulness to us, even when we can't perceive him, even when we can't understand in front of us the good work that he's doing. So some of the same questions that you've wrestled with, it's, it's taking my experiences and then looking at scripture and looking at, you know, classic passages, ones from, from Job and then looking at his mercy in Jonah and, and trying to encourage people to cling to these passages when the shadows descend and when it's really hard to understand in front of you, we do have the truth of who he is. And it's a matter of cleaving to that with all our heart. That's awesome. I'm so excited for that. Can't wait. Oh, thanks. How about you? Do you have anything else in the works? Oh, no. Honestly, Undercurrents is taking all my time. I, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I still work part-time as a case manager. So mm-hmm. I'm at home. And then I have three kids, five and under. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of time already. Exactly. Um, so uh, every month I just, you know, work on content for the newsletter and then now I'm mm-hmm. working on building out this community. And so that pretty much takes up all my time. So I guess yeah. pray sleep. <laughs> the Lord would, would do whatever he wants to do with, with whatever mm-hmm. I'm giving him prayer from, you know, all the many gaps that, that I have, that we all have, that the Lord would yeah. does. And, and then, you know, I guess if you want to refer anybody to a website, you know, I will, I will. Absolutely. I really just, I, and it's not even for me. It's just, uh, I just have such a, a passion that the Lord's mm-hmm. given me to um, encourage believers in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I just want mm-hmm. to say, 
keep going. You're not alone. Keep going. Be obedient to the Lord. It's really scary to step out in faith. It's really Mm -hmm. scary to ask, to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Can I pray for you? Right. Really hard to love sacrificially when your job already takes so much of you. But Mm -hmm. I I think part of being the body is pushing each other forward. Yes. (laughs) We can't push ourselves forward. And so I have such a passion for that. I think the Lord has allowed me to step away from bedside to have the mm-hmm. bandwidth to do that. Just would not have the bandwidth for it if I was still no. outside. I understand completely. <laughs> well, thank you for the work you're doing. And, you know, I, I often um, receive messages from trainees who are, are searching and struggling. I'm definitely going to refer them to Undercurrents and to your book because they're, you're your intuition regarding, you know, the struggles that medical professionals are having, I think is spot on because so many will reach out and they're saying, you know, how do I remain in the word? How do I minister to my patients when the environment seems so set against it? You know, how do I do this? And so I think it's a tremendous ministry, you know, and you're, and you're really fulfilling um, a need to start these conversations. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, a lot of the content that I put out is actually from other healthcare professionals. So other doctors saying, Hey, this is, this is how I treat people like Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my busy time in primary care, this is how I take two minutes out of my day to pray with my patient. Mm-hmm. 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 This is, you know, as a pharmacist, how God has placed me in an outpatient pharmacy role and how I minister to my regulars. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that's, and then that's what I, you know, that's, where my heart is, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not just me and my perspective. It's, it's other people's perspective as well. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So thank you for that encouragement. So often I'm like, what am I doing? I know. I know. <laughs> we give things to the Lord and he does the good work, right? Exactly. <laughs> We're just meant to be obedient. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes it's like whack me to remind me like, it's not about you. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's hard. <laughs> For all of us. <laughs> Romans 1. Uh, let me, I guess, if, if it's okay, I'd like to just pray over you. And yeah, over thank you. That's coming out for you this year, and, and then we can end. Uh, Father, thank you so much for Katie. Father, that you saved her and that you are using her for just great things, Lord. I thank you, Father, for the words that you filled her mind with, for her understanding of your word, and Lord, um, for the connections that the Holy Spirit is making in her mind between the struggles and, and the hope that you offer, Lord. Father, I pray a hand of blessing over Katie as she releases her book this upcoming year. I thank you for the work and the heart that she's poured into it, and Father, I pray that you would bless her efforts. I pray that it would be fruitful, not just financially, but Lord, with just people who um, are encouraged to follow you more, to trust you more, um, and just encouraged by who you are, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work amongst your children who work in healthcare, Father. Father, we pray for a type of revival within the healthcare setting. Father, we pray that um, our brothers and sisters would be faithful to follow you and bold to step out. In obedience, Lord. Father, we pray just for a hand of protection over Katie's family. Father, keep them healthy, keep them safe. And Lord, I pray that um, you would just continue to provide um, in new and good ways for our family. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Sarah. I thank you for the heart she's given you, for you. I thank her for the zeal 
that she has for wanting to spread the good news of Christ crucified and risen, that she has such compassion for her colleagues and for her own patients. And Lord, I ask that you, through your spirit, would move through her compassion so that she might bless others, so that when they look upon her, they can see your face and that she would be the hands and feet of Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would work through her endeavors, through undercurrents and her book, all done while she is also juggling her own family and work. And Lord, that you would use them all for your glory and that they would spark conversations where so many would be able to deepen in their relationship with you and their love for you and in their willingness to be bold and proclaim that, Lord, you are good and that you are you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and you are merciful and that we were fallen and sinful, but that in Christ you have made us new and we have a hope in you that is a living hope that will endure forever. Lord, I pray for her family and for her protection as the virus continues to spread. And I just pray for her healing as she grieves the loss of her friend. And thank you, Lord, for her ministry and just for all the talents you've given her to steward. And I pray you would equip her to steward them well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Such a pleasure getting to know you and talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we can just keep up lines of communication. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be, like I said, I'll be sending your resources in your site to people who contact me. So thank you very much. Take care, Sarah.